Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. This week, Vincent and Ross are away, and so we are doing a great repeat. Repeat of our second most popular show ever, that is with David Frame, the professor from Victoria University who is also an author of the IPCC report. Of course, this is the third part in our series on the IPCC report, and I thought that Professor Dave could give us an insider's view, given that he's written part of it, uh, an insider's view on how the IPCC works, and also on actually the science of warming, and especially the role of methane, given it's such a hot topic in New Zealand. And I would be hard-pressed to find someone more qualified. Dave has a background in physics and philosophy and policy. Uh, His previous posts have included research positions at the University of Oxford's Department of Physics and Geography, and as Deputy Director at the Smith School of Enterprise and Environment. He's also worked at the New Zealand Treasury and served as a a secondment at the UK Department Uh, Department of Energy and Climate Change. And as I mentioned, he'd been a lead author on both the fifth and sixth assessment reports of the IPCC. So it's quite a mouthful, isn't it, Dave? Um, But (laughs) welcome to this climate business. Oh, uh, thanks for having me along. So um, very lucky, actually, for you. You can um, order some takeaways, and I can't because (laughs) I'm talking to you in lockdown four and you're in in lockdown (laughs) two. Yeah, it's certainly a strange world at the moment, isn't it? It um, takes some uh, managing on the fly, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think it does. Well, we're very good at it now. Um, I'm really curious about the way these reports get put together. They seem like an incredible logistics exercise. Could you tell us a bit about what being a lead author actually means? Um, we write the text that goes into the chapters. So um, there's a group of normally about 15 in the physical science report there's about 15 people on a chapter Um, there are a couple of coordinating lead authors whose job it is to pull it all together and to take the structure that's been agreed on by um by the uh technical support unit and the co-chairs of the of the working group and and you know they kind of agree an outline and then they pass it to the coordinating lead authors and then the coordinating lead authors uh use the resources at the disposal to to write um to flesh that out and turn that into an actual report so i was on in the previous one i was on chapter one which was the introduction which was a lot of fun because it was a very general remit um and uh this time i was on chapter seven which was a, a great chapter to be on um i think it's really central to a whole bunch of uh live science policy issues. Um, It was a chapter primarily about climate sensitivity. So that's if you double the uh, amount of CO2 in the atmosphere from pre-industrial levels, how much does the world warm? So that was our overall topic. And we had some subtopics within that. What's the uh, experience of being uh, working together with the, your colleagues and your peers on this? Is it a, is it a collegial exercise? Is it a combative exercise? Oh, it can be either or, or both. Um, you, it's natural that, you know, scientists naturally find sites of disagreement. But um, within the chapters, I've been very lucky that the chapters I've been on have been really harmonious and a great group to work with. And I think this time especially, we had a, we had a lot of fun writing it together. Um, there was a real sense of camaraderie um, among the people writing it. Um, experiences with 
other working groups and other other parts of the report can be can be a bit more variable. Um, it, it varies chapter by chapter. I didn't have mm. a great time working with working group three on this, um, but uh, but you know that you you kind of expect that it won't be it won't always be plain sailing. And the closer you are to policy issues, the less plain sailing you can expect. Right. So because the science is reasonably. I don't know. Um, uncontroversial now? Would that be? Would that be too far about a stretch? Um, it depends which bit of the science you're talking about. But the basic, the basic proposition that um, that greenhouse gases are driving the warming is absolutely uncontroversial. I think. I, um, you know, that's pretty clear. I think the fifth assessment put it really well when they said um, human influence on the climate is uh, climate system is clear. That, that stuff is all really obvious. There are, mm. when you come to talk about some of the details and some of the, um, uh, especially issues to do with priorities, it, 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 then it depends on how you look at it. Yes. The report makes uh, great uh, pain, goes to great pains to point out how accurate the models have become and the simulations as well. Could you explain why have those models improved? And is there a, is, is there a difference between the models and the simulations? Um, well, the models drive, the models run simulations. The models uh, are fed some input parameters. Um, they evolve in time. The you know the state of the climate in the models evolves in time, um, and uh, they have got better and better. They've had um, you know the the best of the models have had thirty years of development, and um, a lot of money spent on them. And they 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 basically they started out as um, weather models that had had a lot stripped out and uh, that had, um, well, they had the principles, of, the basic principles of physics in them. But as we've got more and more computing power, we've been able to do that stuff at finer scales and introduce mm -hmm. more and more of the of the scientific um, components that we know matter in the climate system. Clouds are still a, a thing. Clouds are always a thing because real clouds operate on scales smaller than, um, than we can model. And that's been that's been the outstanding uh, uncertainty in the kind of overall response. But we're getting better. We're getting better. Yeah. Can I ask a really dumb question? And I'm sorry if my listeners think that this is um, such a, a kindergarten question. Feel free to skip ahead. But um, we know that the uh, climate record, uh, in, in terms of our modern scientific uh, recordings of weather, is, is is what maybe. 200 years old, how can we know with such certainty back thousands, tens of thousands, millions of years old? What what are the data points that we rely on to gather that knowledge? Well, our knowledge becomes more uncertain the further back you go. So we've got great global coverage um, in the satellite era. Um, so the part we're most confident about is naturally the recent past when we've spent the most, um, when we've you know, had had the best observational network. As you go further back, you're left with surface temperature records, and those are um, spatially not very, not necessarily very representative. So you can sample ocean temperatures. You know, the sea covers um, seventy percent of the Earth's surface, and um, uh, you, you're left with ship tracks, which which don't go into the polar regions and so on. So. Um, so there are, you know, the further back you go, the sparser the data. And then once you're in the pre-instrumental period, you have things like tree rings and uh, ice cores and other things which require um, 
um, you know, further stages of inference about um, about how you take those and turn them into things like temperatures and and um, and stuff like that. So, you know, the further back you go, the the um, the the greater the data challenge. But some of the really dim and distant past paleo climate um, signals are very large. And so even though the noise is very large, so is the signal. And so that stuff can play a, a useful role augmenting what we understand about the climate system. But the, you know, the most, the, that last 150 years, you can't explain the warming that we've seen without finding a role for greenhouse gases. So that stuff on its own pretty much tells you that, that, um, that climate change is real and driven by greenhouse gases. We're told, for instance, that the, uh, and you see it in those incredible graphs, that we are living in a period uh, where carbon dioxide is now at a concentration that it hasn't been for, for what, and two million years, I think was the number I read. Um, yeah. How does that, how does that number come about? How do we know what the concentration of CO2 was two million years ago? Well, they they use um, a, a range of um, things that have like a ice cores and what have you that where they can get at the um, air that has been trapped within those like little bubbles of air trapped in ice, uh, and then they um, they figure out what the uh, temperature of that air was um, plus or minus, uh, and mm -hmm. they uh, and they also have CO two. Uh, partial pressures so they can get the CO2 concentrations and the and the um, air temperature of course that's only a local thing and then you need to you need to go beyond that and have a whole bunch of um, those data from different parts of the world to get at what you think the global temperature might have been in those days. And I suppose you're getting these um, measurements from all over the world, not just one location. And, and is it a bit like geology where, you know, kind of each point kind of builds on itself until you start to get a coherent picture? Yeah. Um, yeah, they have all sorts of paleoclimate archives. Uh, th there's been a lot um, uh, done in that area in the last 30 years. And uh, globally, what they, they kind of um, try and assemble some sort of picture of um, different periods and and figure out what different regions were where what their climates were like uh, in those in those periods. Models try and synthesize that and put them into a more um, physically coherent story. Um, but but really most of the evidence comes from the recent past where we where we have the instrumental records and um, we're we're a bit more confident about what the surface climate was was like um, across yes. the world. So what is the uh, the causal relationship uh, uh, between uh, our you know human emitted CO2 and warming. Uh, I, th I think we probably know uh, why it happens, but what's the evidence for one coming before the other and it not just being kind of coincidence? Well, in the case of the the last 150 years or so, um, you if you run climate models without with only natural forcing, so that's with the solar cycle and volcanoes, um, you don't get a warming across that period under any hmm. conditions. It's only if you include um, greenhouse gases uh, as observed or, or anthropogenic influences as a whole. So that's aerosols which cool the climate and greenhouse gases which warm the climate. And what you find then when you add all the forcings, so you, the natural forcings plus the anthropogenic ones, is that the world warms. And it's not a surprise the world warms. Um, 
all you know the the some pretty simple physics is governing that trapping of heat and it has to do with uh, how opaque the atmosphere is at long waves um, the long waves at which the earth is re-radiating out to space uh, compared with the short wave that is the um, the uh, ability of the uh, the transmittance of the of the atmosphere at at the radiation at the uh, wavelengths where the sun is actually shining. So, mm. so the kind of we that's the standard way of doing it is to is to consider a, an atmosphere with with where the where the sun is shining on the Earth. The Earth receives radiation. The Earth tries to get rid of that radiation by radiating it to space, and the greenhouse gases in effect hamper that process, and therefore the the um, atmosphere and the surface retain more energy. And the only explanation for the for that incredible growth and concentration of carbon dioxide, mm. especially, is this, uh, this human contribution through the release of fossil fuels. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's clearly what's driving it. And um, you know, so that comparison between a world with greenhouse gas influence in a world without, um, they form the basis of what we call detection and attribution studies, where we try and detect whether or not there's a signal um, of, of change mm. and then attribute it to different causes by um, considering, you know, one cause at a time and then several causes together and, and working our way through that inferential process. And really, you know, the world is warming. That's really clear. Um, the only we have some really simple physics that translates well into models and um, that explains that warming. Um, and there are no major discrepancies between the warming um, we see and our, and our basic physical story. So, so it's not an area where there's some massive controversy and we're not quite sure what's going on. It's a, mm. it, it's a pretty simple physical process and, and human behavior is driving those emissions, which are driving increases in concentrations, which are then changing the radiative balance of the atmosphere. If it looks like a duck and it quacks yeah. like a duck. Yeah. It well, probably it's, is. Yeah, it's almost certainly a duck. <laughs> in this case, I mean, we've got so much information that it's just, it's a duck. There's there's not yeah. a lot of point in sitting around and pretending it's something else. Yeah. Tell us about chapter seven. What what were you studying, and uh, you know, you know, put put you on the spot to see if you can summarise what you concluded. <laughs> well, actually, I, we were summarising what I was just talking about. We were summarising uh, the Earth's uh, energy balance, um, its imbalance, um, the response to uh, a doubling of CO two, and um, and a, a few other what we call um, well different sorts of ways of summarising that global. Uh, response. And we were also writing around a few other things like um, ocean heat uptake, because mm. a, a lot of that energy imbalance has a lot of the energy that, that has been trapped has gone into the ocean about 91% yes. or something. And, um, and we also looked um, briefly at the role of, because we had a general remit in terms of metrics of greenhouse of, of warming, we also looked at emissions metrics, which is where the uh, the stuff to do with short-lived gases versus long-lived gases comes in, which is the the in New Zealand that plays out as the methane issue. Yes, uh, we're going to come to methane in a minute. But what are the uh, 
you know, if, if I ran through them, we, we are seeing the, you know, kind of the main outcomes of this increase in concentration of CO2 especially, but not only that, other greenhouse gases, the surface temperature increases. And, and I guess this is yep. where we're talking about the 1.5, the 2 degrees kind of average uh, increases. Yep. Also, water temperature is rising, sea temperature. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's right. Yep, surface temperatures are rising. Yep. Yes, um, which then also leads to expansion. I suppose that you know, pot, uh, warm water is yeah. is uh, it expands, and is and that in addition to the melting of um, you know ice areas uh, is contributing to our um, rising sea levels. Yeah, and at the moment, I think thermal expansion is the largest term. So yes. if you heat water, it expands. That's why your um, hot water cylinder has a little overflow valve. Um, so there's, you know, when I say that a lot of this stuff, simple physics, I, you know, it's pretty simple, all right. Um, yeah, yeah, even I understand it. Um, acidification of the ocean, where does that, how does that work? Is that to do with the absorption um, of more carbon dioxide? So you're, you're getting what, carbolic acid? Yeah, it's, it's yeah, exactly. It's a, well, it's a chemical um, thing rather than a physical thing. So um, the the ocean acidification is a problem that is also driven by um, by the uh, uh, accumulation of CO two in the atmosphere, and then because it's in the atmosphere, hence in the surface layers of the ocean because they exchange signals, um, and that acidification. Um, then plays a role in uh, decreasing the efficiency of a bunch of processes, marine biology processes in those uh, in those layers. And so it's a problem that runs in parallel and has the same cause as warming, but it's not exactly the same thing. And it's more it's a chemistry problem rather than a physics problem, which is you know the warming is a physics problem. Uh, but it has the 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 greenhouse gas. Primarily, the CO two increase is the thing driving that. If only the planet could tell a difference between a chemistry problem and a physics problem, it would be fine. <laughs> uh, the 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 other major effect, and I, I wonder if this was in your um, in chapter seven as well, was the uh, impact on glaciers, uh, which seems to be um, you know only in one direction. Well, yeah, that, that's uh, that's one for Nick Gollage, actually, my colleague here at Vic. He's uh, so that's um, that stuff's been plays out mainly as well locally as a glacier problem, and then as sea level rise as well. Glaciers contribute to sea level rise. That wasn't one we dealt with. We we were kind of the, the four main things that determine the overall scale of the response are a bunch of feedbacks. Um, the uh, the water vapor and lapse rate feedback, which act together. So if you heat the surface layers of the ocean, you get more evaporation, you get more water vapor. Um, that that goes up to the um, upper atmosphere and then it releases energy uh, when it turns from water vapor back into droplets. Those two effects act jointly. They're very important in the tropics uh, and they govern part of the amplitude of the response. Um, the surface albedo, uh, so as you change uh, the vegetation or the, um, well, as you change the vegetation, you change the shininess or the absorptive, how much the surface absorbs and how much it reflects. Uh, mm -hmm. And that, that, uh, that contributes to further warming. And then clouds, which are also uh, can potentially warm and, and can, well, they can warm and they do warm the climate and they also cool the climate. And the exact ratio 
uh, the, the exact mix is the the thing that climate models kind of argue about the most and in which if you actually think through the contributions to the overall response, it tends to be cloud radiative feedbacks that you spend most of your time on. Uh, but those those things, water vapor and lapse rate, albedo feedbacks, um, like albe a good example of an albedo feedback is sea ice. If you melt all the sea ice in the Arctic, you have a blue surface instead of a shiny surface. Hmm. Uh, and so that that enhances warming um, and, and clouds as well. So so those those are the sorts of things we were discussing, you know, a lot in the chapter, because those are the primary feedbacks within the climate system. Um, chapter five also considered feedbacks within the carbon, the carbon cycle feedbacks, which play an important role in determining carbon budgets. If you take the stuff in chapter seven and the stuff in chapter five, that's basically how you do carbon budgets. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're going to come to methane, I promise, in a minute. But um, just on that albedo effect, the uh, there's. Quite a few examples of people, uh, I, I just read, for instance, uh, the other day in the Swiss Alps, they were covering a glacier with a thermal blanket that acted both as an um, insulator, but also uh, worked, worked to reflect the sun. Uh, you hear also of, uh, I think I saw in Sydney, a law change that um, roofs are now required to be painted in a lighter colour. Yeah. Are these kind of measures, uh, they sound worthy uh, up against the climate system are those kind of gestures uh, are they more than gestures could they actually make a difference um, I think the ultimate solution to warm the ultimate way we have to stop the warming is to stop emitting fossil fuels uh, fossil CO carbon basically and that is I don't think anybody really seriously disagrees with that other initiatives can contribute. Um, if you paint something shiny um, rather than uh, dark, then you do backscatter radiation, and that's then um, you know you're you're um, reducing the forcing per unit area, the, the radiative forcing. But but that's it's it's a little bit like a, a um, home geoengineering project in a way, yeah. um, and and may, maybe you're you know you're, you're actually dealing with that short wave I talked about before. You're, you're giving a short wave answer to a long wave question. The 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 real problem in the system is the this radiation from the Earth. Once it's been heated by the sun, the radiation can't get out as easily as it could, and simply backscattering more radiation on the way in. Is is that kind of um, like I say, short wave answer to a to a long wave question? So, you know, you can. There are a bunch of things you can do. Um, I, I once worked out about fifteen years ago how much tin foil I would need to, if I like bought a bit of Australia and put tin foil down, and changed from red to silver. How how much would I need to offset my overall lifetime forcing? And it was kind of a interesting, fun thing to do. <laughs> But I wouldn't seriously. It's not a scalable answer, right? It's just a, like I say, it's it's a homegrown geoengineering project, and and you know, maybe there's a role for that stuff, but but it's not the main event. I think Rio Tinto would be totally supportive. <laughs> yeah, the um, mm, the it, it's striking how many of firms like that are enthusiastic about doing anything but the thing they need to do. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, that is, uh, well, we talked about that last week on the show with Rod Orham, how, just how frustrating it is that we can isolate, it, uh, you know, which big businesses are having the most effect 
and how resistant mm. to change they are. Um, before we get to methane, um, tell me about water vapor. So um, the, 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 explain the, the theory of how water vapor increases as a result of warming. I mean, it kind of stands to reason, I suppose, if yeah. you've done your fourth form physics. But, but then how does that contribute to a feedback effect? Well, if you if you heat the earth and you get more water vapor in the in the air because um, because uh, your the surface is warmer, so it, it's the you get a greater vapor flux coming out. Um, that's then because water vapor itself is quite a strong greenhouse uh, gas. That is. Um, a case of carbon stimulating a warming, which is then re-stimulated by a second effect, which is the water vapor effect. So it's the fact that water vapor itself is a, is a strong greenhouse gas and you've put more water vapor in the atmosphere. So you've put up in effect another greenhouse gas. Um, mm. it, it acts together, tropical convection, the, um, you know, half the earth's surface is tropics, right? From about 30 north to 30 south is 50% of the earth's, land area or surface area and the convection that goes on in the tropics is a really important part of of the um the story and that um that tropical convection then what happens you get that water vapor you chuck it up to the top of the atmosphere uh through convection those big big thunder clouds you see in the tropics and uh and then it has a phase change where that that vapor turns back into uh liquid back into rain and that um that itself is releasing further energy aloft. So that's that's actually a positive, uh, a negative feedback, sorry, on the warming, but it acts jointly with the water vapor feedback to give you an overall positive feedback. Um, this is more um, climate physics than I was expecting, I, I have to say. I, <laughs> I hope your listeners well, are turning off. <laughs> no, that's exactly why we have you on the show, so that you could um, explain the stuff to us. The the is the water vapor and this this feedback effect is that what is contributing to the uh, increase in the a uh, kind of sudden rainfall and these massive deluges that uh, we are seeing around the world. Are we suddenly li living in a monsoon planet? Hmm. Um, it, it, well, certainly, there's a relationship called the Clausius-Clapeyron relationship, which says Hang basically on, that again, they, the Clausius-Clapeyron relationship, <laughs> um, and it it basically says that for an it's extra just worth degree, knowing for the name, isn't it? More than yeah, yeah, it's a good name. Um, but for an extra degree of warming, the most saturated parcels of air can contain about seven percent more moisture, and um, those uh, those saturated parcels of air are now uh, more full of moisture than they were, and that is what is uh, contributing to these um, extreme rainfall events that we're seeing. So in New Zealand, work by Luke Harrington here at the Climate Change Research Institute and, and Suzanne Rosier at NIWA uh, and others has shown that um, that a lot of our rainfall, mo most of the really heavy rainfall events come as what we call atmospheric rivers out of the um, out of the tropics uh, and um, come blasting into uh, New Zealand, and they're they're more full of water than they were, and so there's more water to dump. Uh, and when they interact with, especially with unstable meteorological conditions, just uh, where they run into, so they make some sort of complex system by banging into something else as well as the land. You get these really really heavy events and. Um, we've known about these for quite a while. Uh, I would say that the the research linking these extreme rainfall events and 
um, uh, and climate change goes back a good 15 years. And in New Zealand, we've been um, studying these for for about, I think, probably about 10 years as events that are closely linked to climate change. Um, and and the and we have a, we're beginning to build a good picture of that. And I'm actually I'm actually leading a um, endeavor fund project uh, called Fakahura or, or the emergence of climate change extremes. Um, which is looking at at this as well as uh, drought events and and wildfire events and other extreme uh, weather events. Why is methane such a powerful greenhouse gas? Well, um, there are a range of different different greenhouse gases. They they vary along two kind of axes. One is how effective uh, a kilogram of that gas is at trapping radiation um, and there there are some some of the industrial gases are really really high really powerful at taking uh, at trapping radiation um, co2 per kilogram is not especially um, powerful at it uh, which is a good thing um, because otherwise uh, you know this might have got away on us before we'd got a handle on it um, climate change um, hmm. but uh, methane is is one of a number of gases that uh, you know has quite a strong warming effect. Um, it's not up the top end. The the ones with the really really high um, uh, powerful abilities to 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 trap radiation have um, um, global warming potentials in the thousands or tens of thousands. But methane, given its abundance, is, is a powerful greenhouse gas. It's also the other axis along which they vary is um, the residence time. And some greenhouse gases have short residence times and some have uh, very, very long residence times or, uh, and are in, in effect kind of permanent. Um, mm. And in the case of uh, methane, it's, um, it's a powerful greenhouse gas, much more powerful than CO2 in terms of trapping radiation, but it only lasts about 10 years or so. Whereas CO2 uh, is not characterized by a single time scale, but, um, but uh, uh, from a kilogram emitted from your tailpipe, about, um, I don't know, 40% or so is there after 100 years and about 20% or so after uh, 10,000 years, I think something like that. Uh, so the, it, it, a, a large fraction of it is in effect permanent. Um, and it's, uh, it, so that the, the, the research we've been doing um, and, and the chapter made this fairly clear because I don't know, this isn't scientifically controversial. Um, it, it, the that you, there are different ways of making the comparison between these different greenhouse gases, and the the basic problem is that when people try and come up with a single measure of a greenhouse gas against CO two, they're collapsing those two axes: mm -hmm. the um, ability to trap radiation and the the um, residence time onto one, and um, that doesn't really do a very good job. And so actually, when we see in the in the written down a CO two E, which the E for yeah. equivalent, that's that yeah. is the symbol for collapsing those all those. Yep. It's kind of almost like I don't know. It wouldn't be averaging, but it's some it's somehow a grabble measure of all those different greenhouse gases. Yep, it's based on the time integrated radiative forcing of a kilogram of some species against that of the time integrated one hundred year radiative forcing of a kilogram of CO two. And so it's a ratio with no yes. units. And uh, it's not a very good way to make the comparison. And um, it, 
some people defend it as a compromise that was struck on and that people have sort of been using, and so they might as well keep going. But hmm. uh, it, it was a very path-dependent thing. The One of the people I was lucky enough to work with on Chapter 1 in the fifth assessment report was Don Werbels, um, who's uh, uh, from Illinois, I think. Um, Illinois, Michigan, I think it was Illinois. <laughs> anyway, he Don was on the first assessment report, and John Houghton, who was the um, the chair of the IPCC at that point, uh, came in one day and asked Don if he could do something like what Don had done for um, ozone destruction potential, ozone, the power of a uh, of a um, chlorofluorocarbon uh, species to destroy ozone. John asked Don if he could do something like that for the greenhouse effect. And so John came, uh, Don came up with this way of doing things um, with his students, which was called GWP. And um, the first assessment report made it really clear that they weren't endorsing this. They actually chose what they called a simple method to show the problems inherent in doing this of collapsing those two axes into one. But it kind of stuck. And... Hmm. Um, the the question is, you know, and in the Kyoto era, when people were looking to make small changes to emissions or, you know, reductions of several percent rather than 100 percent, it probably didn't make a huge amount of difference. It, scientists complained about GW. There's a long literature complaining about that CO2E or GWP 100 in the science literature, but it was pretty niche. But as you start to actually put real money on this and start to choose those priorities about what you do when to um, deal with climate change, the issues that uh, arise from that collapsing of those two axes into one start to become more real. And mm. um, well, yep. when you think about the New Zealand context that we... Yeah we have actually uh, a pretty good story to tell, particularly around energy, right, which is for most countries the largest emitter of CO2 or of G greenhouse gases is CO2 from energy. But uh, because of our methane contribution, is that what you're saying, that there's a conflation of our, our data effectively and it makes our story worse than it actually is? Is that what you're well, saying? Well, I'm not sure we do. It depends how, whether or not we have a good story to tell depends on how you look at things. So if you, New Zealand historically is a low CO2 country and in theory, that's a good story. The problem is um, most of those decisions that made us a, um, a, a low CO2 country were made a very long time ago for reasons that had nothing to do with climate change. Mm -hmm. um, they were to do with developing a, a, a hydroelectric electricity supply. Um, and so what's happened is we haven't made inroads into CO2 emissions. Um, and we've kind of, we've, we've had a, we do, we have a effective, fairly effective price in some ways on carbon now. Um, but for a long time, even though we had a, a an, an emissions trading system, we did have a price on carbon. It was. It's very hard to see how that's really driven things down at, at a rate that's consistent with the aim to stay under two degrees. So um, it's actually hindered us in the sense that it's masked the methane contribution um, by conflating it with CO two. When well, uh, we 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 should have been, from a policy point of view, been more aggressive in our approach to methane much earlier. Well, I think we should have been more aggressive to CO two and actually drive it down. Um, in terms of methane, it 
because it's short-lived, it's not cumulative. So the, the warming is just purely cumulative in CO2. So every time you're, it, it's like um, uh, lead in your blood or something like that, lead or asbestos or one of those cumulative heavy metals mm -hmm. or, or other long-lived pollutants in the environment. And, and every kilo you emit keeps adding to the warming. Methane is more like um, coffee or alcohol in that it breaks down over time. And the choice of um, which one, you know, in, in my like in most pollution regulation, I think you would normally separate these out and have targets for short lived and targets for long lived. We mm -hmm. don't we don't make fungible permits between, you know, you're able to, oh, I had one less cup of coffee today, so I'll snort a little more asbestos. We don't we don't normally <laughs> trade off like that. Right. That would be a weird thing to do. But it's something that because we're in this habit. Um, we run the risk of, of of doing. And that would be, in my view, really dumb. And it would be really easy to leave a warmer world behind if we suddenly, if we make trade-offs that mean we go really hard after methane and we continue our long-standing habit of not doing much on CO2 because, gee, people drive cars and it turns out if you, you know, we have a very suburban pattern of urban settlement. 85% of New Zealanders live in in cities or things a bit like cities um we have a very uh spread out diffuse uh urban form we all drive everywhere if you try and make meaningful inroads into that before electric cars get here you'll pay an electoral price um but so it's much easier politically for for people who you know don't expect a lot of votes out of the out of the farmers anyway to go after methane um and but the danger is if you leave if you leave those CO2 emissions going and if you go after methane instead of CO2, then the danger is that you might actually leave a warmer world behind pretty easily. If you make the hmm. trade-offs at that usual CO2 equivalent number of about 28, within within 40 years, you would be leaving a warmer world behind. The farming lo lobby must love this message. Do do you find well, yourself in agreement with uh, agriculturalists? Oh, sometimes, um, and sometimes <laughs> not. So, uh, because it's short lived, you can actually reduce warming quite fast by making some, and because it's a powerful greenhouse gas, you can actually reduce um, warming from by reducing emissions. So you can decrease the warming that New Zealand's responsible for by making it. 10, 20, 30% cut in the um, methane. Um, whereas if you make a 10, 20, 30% cut in CO2, all you do is reduce the rate at which you're warming the world. Mm -hmm. Now, taken together, the, the Zero Carbon Act actually, um, if we got to zero CO2 and nitrous oxide by 2050, net zero, and um, we cut uh, methane emissions by about 35% plus or minus, um, which is how I interpret that 20 whatever to 47% band. Um, it's about 35% plus or minus 12 or something. Th then mm -hmm. you would basically, ha New Zealand would stop its contribution to warming sometime in the tw late 2030s or 2040s. So that would be mean that we have stopped our contribution to warming well before the Europeans, for instance, who tend to be, you know, because they're intending to be net zero by CO2. Net zero are all gases, but because because they are so thoroughly dominated by cumulative gases, 
getting to net zero for them would imply stopping the warming. They don't have the methane lever. So the point is the current plan to reduce methane emissions by about 35% in the next 30 years, while getting all the way to 100% on all the other gases, um, is uh, would in effect stop our contribution to warming earlier than um, that of um, the people who regularly congratulate themselves as being world leaders. <laughs> This is not the message that we are getting typically from Europeans, but other critics of New yeah. Zealand that are are um, pointing particularly to our agricultural emissions as uh, unaddressed and yeah. unaccounted for. Well, the, um, a lot depends on the Heiwaka Ekinoa program, um, and if the if the agricultural community can get its act together and figure out. Uh, with government ways of um, achieving the emissions reductions um, that you know we hope to achieve, then um, then I think that a lot of that criticism should go away because the target itself is fine. Um, <laughs> the, I've never heard a European, um, and that includes you know European voices in New Zealand like Rod Orham, um, say I've never heard them actually you know. Why does New Zealand have to stop its contribution to warming before um, before uh, Europe? What, why, what are, why do we have a special obligation to stop? Given that, so the British High Commissioner said something last year about New Zealand not being up to scratch on climate policy because we weren't doing net zero the way they were. And mm. then one of the people on the UK's high Climate Change Commission, a guy called... Uh, uh, Lord Debon, John Gummer, he he came out and said something similar. But but actually, if we stop our contribution of warming before they do, why are we the bad guys? Um, <laughs> I've never heard a good answer to that. But the but and, and in general, it's because people actually don't understand um, this the points that um, they don't understand the difference between short-lived and long-lived gases well enough to yes. know to know how the two interact with um, warming. And it's it's just a little frustrating that I think there's quite a lot of cultural cringe in this in New Zealand that um, that people um, that we kind of expected to defer to um, overseas voices or to what the Brits say or you know it's, it, there are times when climate policy in New Zealand really makes me think we're 1921 not 2021 um, <laughs> because because there's just this sort of um, this uh, presumption that well, other countries have this, and and we're behind them, so we must we must do it that way. And I guess I just don't think that way. Well, implied in what you're saying, of course, is that uh, we do manage to curtail our transport emissions, which is no easy feat. You know, we yeah. don't have the equivalent of a, a um, Heiwaka Ekanoa in transport, for instance. Absolutely. We don't have industry wide collaboration with uh, users, manufacturers, regulators, planners to aggressively set targets and figure out how we get there. What what we have is a sort of hodgepodge of um, city governments, um, possibly petrol taxes, congestion charges. It sounds yeah. like what the implication, I know you're a scientist and so it's not fair to ask you for what, what policy should be, but it sounds like in terms of priorities, you are really throwing the challenge back to our 
our urban dwellers. Well, well, yeah, I, I think I can, I could see paths to reducing our emissions, our methane emissions by thirty-five percent. A combination of on-farm activities, of efficiency gains, of technology. You know, if you've got to come down by a third in thirty years, okay. But, but, but we got to, We've said we're going to come down by a hundred percent in um, CO two, and forestry kind of. Um, isn't scalable for the CO2 problem. Um, you you just have to keep planting larger and larger areas if you're just going to rely on forests. Um, oh, you're talking about off, offsetting rather than I'm talking about offsetting, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, I think I, when I often go to um, conferences where companies talk about what they're hoping to do and, you know, if you talk to a company and they say they're net zero, usually what's happened is they've made some efficiency gains and they are offsetting or they're buying um, in the old Kyoto days, they were buying, buying uh, permits from overseas or what have you and saying yes. that that was net zero. And, um, you know, that's not really, it's, it's not a sustainable, it, it may be an accounting um, net zero, but it's not a sustainable climate policy net zero because uh, once, if you keep emitting, you need to keep planting those trees and you'll run out of, space for the trees faster than you run out of fossil fuel reserves. Well, um, it gets even so worse than that. In, in, in California, uh, their forests, which are acting as their carbon sinks, are now on fire. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 yeah. And are contributing, uh, you know, are now contributing to global warming because of the, you know, the release of energy. Yeah. And it, it it's... Um, it's easy to do this quite badly, I think, and that's where uh, um, the environmental integrity uh, of climate policy is going to come under more and more scrutiny because because we actually need to stop the warming, and um, and that's where the way you compare the the roles of different factors in the climate system, forests, uh, fossil emissions, other gases becomes really, really important for that goal of, of actually halting the warming, which if you go back to um, the Framework Convention on Climate Change, that's kind of what people have more or less agreed to do. And that's certainly what Article 2 of the Paris Agreement thinks we're doing. And um, and it, how you make these comparisons becomes really important. And, and then it becomes partly about where you put the pressure. And that's where, I guess, I think the implicit implication of a net zero target by 2050, given our, given our transport, given our population growth, given the increased um, sprawl, suburban sprawl we've seen, and we're probably going to see again as we try and deal with another major issue, which is the housing crisis, um, I just think you're putting a huge bet on technology getting you out of jail uh, in the form of electric vehicles or hydrogen vehicles or something like that. And um, what's Plan B. What if that stuff comes through slower than we think? What do we? How do we actually deliver on that hundred percent CO two reduction? Um, and you, you, yep, go you go. Uh, I was going to ask you, given your multidisciplinary background, you know, you've worked in treasury, you've spent time working in an enterprise institute. Are you finding that the? I suppose the interest and engagement from business. Are you invited to participate? Uh, are they seeking you out for advice and participation and how to solve this? 
Sometimes, some some do. Um, uh, it's really interesting that a lot of the the kind of industry NGO things, I felt like after I started talking about uh, methane, um, you know, some of those some of those invites dried up, and that was interesting because um, because people clearly heard. Well, they obviously ask who they want to, but some of that I think was that people struggled with um, with understanding how uh, how these different gases play a role, and um, you know, among the people who really didn't like the stuff we were saying, if you look at their submissions on the Zero Carbon Act, were people like uh, I think it was. Um, uh, one or two of the oil companies really didn't like the um, the option of stabilizing methane or small reductions in methane and, and net zero CO2, presumably because they thought that would be bad for them. So it's kind of, a, it's an interesting space. You, you get all sorts. <laughs> it, you, you always know that you're on the right side if the oil companies are against you. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know that that's a that's a kind of a hint, isn't it? Mm. Um, your um, we we need to stop talking because we're well over time. But I'm I'm curious to know your philosophy background. What um what's the connection there? You don't meet many climate scientists with philosophy in their credentials. Yeah, well, I did a um I did philosophy as a major um alongside. I guess I started in it's pretty typical story for a lot of people I think I started doing physics and then I did a philosophy paper taken by David Novitz at the University of Canterbury and I, I really loved it and I couldn't get enough and so I did <laughs> I did a full major in philosophy but I couldn't bring myself to do philosophy of science because hearing some of the social science critiques of of science I could just about manage you know as, a, as an adult but when you're actually having to plow through differential equations and, and tensors and things like that. The last thing you want to hear is is somebody kind of with a cup of coffee telling you that it's all all just a you know social <laughs> construct. Um, but so I did I did that. I'm actually almost at the end of a economics and history degree as well, which is I just um I guess I I read a lot of history and I, I did a bit of economics. So I kind of I just like doing that sort of stuff, I suppose. <laughs> it's this this problem of climate change is often described as humanity's greatest problem. That always seems to me to be a little bit of a vanity in that uh, every generation thinks that's the end of the world. Uh, is it really our biggest problem? Um, it's up there. I mean, it depends It depends how close the asteroid is. <laughs> um, there are, there are a, something I'm really interested in is there's a dozen, couple of dozen types of existential risks um, that include asteroids uh, that include, oh, I've got a list here on my on my wall, actually, nuclear war, bioterror, bio, bio <laughs> you know, sort of things that, yeah, the sort of things you enjoy looking at when you come to work. Um, exactly. I've got a list of jokes on my wall, but yeah. just for my comparison. Um, and, you know, and there are, there are a whole bunch of things that we have to, that are potentially the end of the world. And climate change, I think, could... It, it, it's it's high probability that in some parts of the world it'll lead to social collapse or real real problems. Um, I don't personally. I, I don't think it's a proximate um, threat like of that magnitude to New Zealand. And I know that there are people in New Zealand who do. 
But I think, um, I actually think the political logic, if you think that's happening, if you think that we are on the verge of social collapse, the political logic is, is becomes pretty hideous. Um, but it's really clear that it's a problem we need to, we need to um, work our way through. But the incentives, the, the, the real problem is the incentives are really poor. Um, mm. and, and we have to change those incentives. And that technology will play a big role. Um, uh, habits and norms and behavior changes um, and trust internationally need to play a role as well. But it's not an easy problem. And, and I think one of the things that people who've been in this field for a long time um, tend to converge on is that it's going to take ages to, to fix it. It's not something that, um, that, that it's not a silver bullet problem. Um, and it's, it's, there's got to be, there was in the case of the ozone hole um, as more or less a silver bullet because it was a one sector problem. It was a handful of gases or a small number of gases. It was one sector that was causing the problem. And if you mm. deal with that sector, you're away. Well, the problem is the ubiquitous use of fossil fuels uh, across a whole range of technologies, across a whole range of sectors and, and globally. And so it's going to take um, a lot of work and um, it, its characteristics as a public good are really interesting but really challenging. And um, I guess I feel that the that this one we probably can manage and I think we can stop warming um, before that point at which everything would go hideously wrong. Um, but there may be another public goods problem 200 years down the road that we that we don't get on top of in time. Um, and I think the philosophy, you know, has a pretty clear connection with those sorts of, and the policy side uh, have a pretty clear connection with those sorts of concerns. But mm. um, but I, I'm not a doomist. I'm not somebody who who you know. I have two kids. Um, I um, I I think that they are very lucky to grow up in a society like New Zealand, and I think they should be optimistic, but um, but clear-eyed about the challenges ahead. I think the tendency to catastrophize is one of the consequences of the uh, kind of it's an effect of the constant discussion about climate change. And it's something I've noticed in myself that I've, you know, I've gone from from curiosity into quite a dark space and have to constantly bring myself back to remind myself that it's a problem that has a solution. And this must be something that everyone that works in this field must struggle with, and I'm I'm sure you have as well. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, um, and I don't think there's a right way to view it. Every everyone has the right to conceive of the problem and the solutions in their own in their own way, and to choose their own priorities. And um, you know, one of the things that I find a bit triggering is when you get um, when you get people saying, "Climate scientists, you need to do this," and it, it, I just find it thoroughly uncompelling because it basically is make, tries to make everybody else subservient to your specific political and social and technological agenda. And um, and the, the catastrophizing, I don't think it leads where people who are new to the problem think it does. Uh, you get a lot of the same um, memes coming up when new people come into climate change, like the 10 years to save the world thing, where those conversations have been around for 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and the fact is every kilogram counts and every kilogram you don't emit is a 
good kilogram. Every kilogram yeah. that stays in the ground is a great kilogram. Um, and rather than saying 10 years to save the world or things like that, and and the, the problem with the real doomism that says we're on the point of catastrophe is that, that if nations believe that, if they really think there's a, there's a Hobbesian war of everyone against everyone else coming, then the rational response is to, is to rearm, not to invest in the well-being of other people through climate mitigation. And that would be a tragic, hideous world to be in that would probably be a self-fulfilling prophecy like like the two wars, two major global wars last mm-hmm. century. Um, well, let's not go all... there. Let's, no, let's, no. <laughs> let's, let's live in a world do. of abundance. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And I, 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 I totally um, am excited about the future that is an alternative to fossil fuels. And uh, it's one of the reasons I'm involved in the venture capital fund is because the opportunities are so exciting. For... The people... I find most the, the 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 meetings I go to where I come out most optimistic and sort of buzzing about this this world are meetings of engineers and and some business people and and the worst ones tend to be political scientists and lawyers <laughs> um, <laughs> but but I do think that there that there's changes is coming there'll be pots of gold at the end of the rainbow for low carbon or zero carbon technologies. And and when the incentives are strong enough, people follow them. And I, I mm. you know, I think that I think and once once it's done, then all sorts of people will pile on and Exxon will say they were with us all along and all those other things. <laughs> uh, what do they say? Um success has many fathers. Yes, yeah. Well, DuPont played a blinder with the, you know, as a with, with ozone hole, they they quibbled about the science. They quibbled about the science, and they turned up with the answer and said they agreed with everybody. And um, you know, well, the, we don't we don't have that problem anywhere near as well as we did. It's on the way to recovery. Uh, Dave Frame, Professor Dave Frame, thanks for joining us. That was a delightful discussion, and thanks for your mahi in this area. I'm sure we will hear from you again. This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. 